the enduring legacy of Matthew Shepard. Personally, I don't want him to be forgotten. He's had such a huge impact on my life. And as the years and decades have gone on, many people have either forgotten him or never heard of him. So this was something that I could do to amplify his name and his story in hopes of inspiring people to take action and make the world a better place. That's Leslie Newman. Later in the show, we talk with her about her new book, Always Matt, a tribute to Matthew Shepard. But first, a lot of folks call Donald Trump and other right-wing autocrats populists. The real populists are probably turning over in their graves. They were the first ones to really articulate a progressive program for changing what American capitalism would be about. It would still be a market system, but they wanted a government that was amplified by democratic power and expansion of democratic rights and would be able to take on big business. That's Steve Babson. His book is The Forgotten Populist, When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. The term populist has evolved into a pejorative label today, implying demagoguery and right-wing autocracy. But the actual populist movement of the 1890s advocated for a broader democracy to counter corporate monopoly and profiteering. The movement, which brought together farmers and workers, black and white, and women and men, changed American politics for the better. As Steve Babson reveals in The Forgotten Populists, the Republican and Democratic parties were forced to recognize the rising support within their ranks for progressive change due to populist influence. They co-opted the populist's radically democratic message, adopted some reforms, and then hounded the populists into oblivion. But the movement's example of a broad-based movement for working-class rights has nonetheless reverberated down to today. Babson argues that recovering the historical meaning of their challenge to corporate absolutism is crucial for understanding current struggles against corporate profiteering and right-wing authoritarians. Steve Babson, welcome to Writer's Voice. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So your book, The Forgotten Populists, is a wonderful corrective, I would say, to what seems to be the mainstream notion of what populism is. So tell us what populism really means. The original populists uh, were very different from what people might conclude uh, listening to the today's commentary that likens uh, Donald Trump to the forgotten populists of the 1890s. Uh, And they were calling for change at a time when farmers and railroad workers and coal miners and a wide range of reformers were very upset with the extraordinary power being wielded by what we call today robber barons. And that's what they were called back then as well. This, This was the class of new investors, very powerful, wealthy men. Uh, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, who had established extraordinary corporate power, a new kind of presence in the American economy and society. After the Civil War ended in 1865, they rise to power. 
And many farmers and workers find that while there was the promise of access to new markets and international trade, and that's a positive thing, they were finding that the monopoly power of these huge corporations was actually stifling their capacity to participate in that new system. And particularly when uh, these robber barons were basically counting on the support, which they got in ample amounts from both the Democratic and the Republican parties. Both of them were devoted to advancing the interests of this new elite of, of mega rich folks. And by the way, this might sound a little familiar today because we've had some of the same issues today uh, where folks are confronting extraordinary inequality in income and looking for changes and positive change. And what the populists were about, they were the first ones to really articulate a progressive program for changing what American capitalism would be about. It would still be a market system, but they wanted a government that was amplified by democratic power and expansion of democratic rights and would be able to take on big business. Rather than a small government uh, that could be dominated by big, big business, they wanted a government strong enough to empower working people and farmers against this new class of mega rich, the robber barons. We are in a new Gilded Age. I was just looking at um, some figures the other day that shows that our income inequality is very, very close to equal to what it was at the end of the 19th century when it was extraordinary. You also write that the populist defense of democracy and their challenge to the growing power of corporate monopoly transformed the nation's political terrain. Now, we'll go a little bit more into detail in this in a little bit, but just briefly give us a broad introduction to that statement. Well, what I'm about is trying to underline how at that moment in the 1890s, both of the main political parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, were devoted to supporting and subsidizing and gifting these corporate leaders with extraordinary power and uh, public resources, really. For example, to build the railroads, the federal government and state governments lavished extraordinary gifts upon these new corporations, including in the case of the federal government, they gifted, you know, the Union Pacific, Southern Pacific, Pennsylvania Railroad, they gifted those railroads 170 million acres of free land. That's equivalent to the size of Texas, plus subsidies for their interest expenses and cash payments for every mile of railroad laid. And looking the other way as these this new class of industrial robber barons were actually stealing from the public welfare. They were taking extraordinary payments to build these railroads while they were secretly owning the contractors who were double charging the public for building those railroads. And so the populists were saying, this has got to stop. And they, they had a whole program of progressive reforms, regulation of corporations, taxing the rich, in some cases, taking over the railroads uh, when they no longer were operating for the benefit of the public. And what happened was is that the Democrats in particular, but also the Republicans, had to concede the point that there was a growing population that wanted change, positive change and progressive change. And the Democrats in particular began to co-opt, in effect, their populist program. The populists were very successful in the early 1890s as a third party. They had no choice, by the way. A third party made sense then because there was no primary system. Uh, there was no primaries to select and debate within the political parties who might be the better representative 
of that party's interests. There were simply conventions dominated by the ruling leadership of those parties, and they would basically force out and marginalize any alternative voice. And so a third party was the only option, unlike today, where there actually are primaries where people can run and contest and challenge a prevailing point of view within those parties. They had to go third party, but they were very successful. They elected six governors in the 1890s. They elected 50 members of Congress. And the Democrats in particular had to adopt some of their platform for addressing a whole range of issues. And in fact, over time, the populists set in motion a whole range of reforms that they championed and that were eventually implemented. Sometimes it took a few years, sometimes a couple decades. But voting rights for women and African-Americans, for example, populists favored both. Women, by, at that time, the Constitution prevented them from voting in federal elections. And of course, in the South, the ruling elite, the white supremacists who ruled in the South, did not want to see what the populists were advocating. That was an alliance of black and white farmers who had common interests economically. And the populists wanted to address their need for cheaper credit, for an expansion of the money supply, a postal savings bank that would loan them money at 2%, as opposed to the sometimes 40 or 50% or more that local merchants and mortgage companies were charging farmers on the Great Plains and in the South as well. So people were being gouged by these monopoly corporations and were disadvantaged by this new industrial system. They wanted a reformed industrial system. And in a way, if you think about it, the New Deal in the 1930s was in a way a culmination of what the populace had been advocating all along, a point where the government as a representative of the people with expanded democratic rights, giving them access to actually programs that would help working people that's what you saw implemented in the 1930s in a way that was very positive. And even the Republican Party had to shift in response to the populace. And in fact, there was a, a new, this sort of a, sounds like an oxymoron, but there was actually a, a wing of the Republican Party that called themselves progressive Republicans. And they really, their legacy, they were the implementation on a wider scale of what the populace were the first to articulate and force into the public discussion. That covers a lot of territory, but we'll go a little bit more into the details. I mean, first of all, I want to ask you, why were the railroads in the 1870s such a flashpoint for the agrarian radicals who ultimately ended up founding the populist movement? Well, you know, if you think about it, farmers who want to get their crops to market are going to become dependent on railroads. And railroads offered a real opportunity for a lot of farmers who otherwise would not really be able to plausibly send their crop, whether it was wheat or corn, uh, or in the case of the South, cotton, their access to international trade and markets depended on building of these railroads. And at first, farmers were very much in favor of this. They wanted railroads to be able to access those markets. And so there was a lot of public support for subsidizing and providing resources to get these huge corporate enterprises up and running. The problem was that once they were up and running, they were operated by absentee investors for the benefit of those investors living hundreds of miles away with no particular interest in the welfare of farmers or working people. And remember, at this time, our economy was still substantially focused on agrarian and agricultural pursuits. The largest occupational group in 1890, according to the census, was 43% of all employed and active, economically active people were farmers or farm workers, 43%. Today, it's down to under 2% after decades of automation and 
now actually scaling up into, into corporate empires in which the farmers who remain include some family farmers who are hanging on and trying to survive, but a lot of farmers have been reduced to the status of contract workers for the likes of Tyson. But back in the 1890s, uh, Kansas farmers, for example, at some points, as crop prices were falling dramatically, they were finding that railroad rates were staying at a very high level, and it cost more in Kansas in some years of the 1890s to ship corn to the Chicago market than that actual corn would get on the marketplace once it arrived there. And so in some of these depression years with 20% unemployment, farmers in Kansas were using corn as fuel. It was no longer profitable or even economically plausible to send it to markets where they couldn't even fetch enough money to pay for the freight costs. So that's why they, the railroads initially had a lot of goodwill and public support, but by their abusive practices, charging extraordinarily high rates, and then, by the way, secretly gifting major corporations substantial rebates. So that's how John Rockefeller made his, his money, was by secretly colluding with a whole series of railroads, promising he would ship via the, the favored railroad if they, in turn, gave him rebates. That's how he drove his competition out of the market and established, in other words, an artificial monopoly, not based on particular efficiency, but based on collusion and fraud. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Steve Babson about his book, The Forgotten Populace, When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy. So another big issue was also the gold standard. The U.S. was on the gold standard at that time. The value of money depended on the amount of gold that was available. So why was this such an issue? Well, it's it's a complicated one, uh, and it's one I tried to provide a, a plausible understanding of in the book, you know, which is aimed at a broader audience. It's scholastically, I think, sound, but it's an effort to communicate these complex issues uh, to the widest possible audience. And in the case of the gold standard, it's, it's a bizarre world. Back then, and really up until the Civil War, there was no publicly printed currency. Every bank printed its own bills with the name of the bank on it. And the idea was that you could go to that bank if you wanted to and redeem that paper bill for an equivalent amount of gold. That meant, of course, they couldn't issue that many bills because there wasn't that much gold. By definition, it's, it's a scarce resource. After the Civil War, there's still private banks are printing private label bills, and they're not printing any more than they could plausibly cover if a lot of depositors came in and turned in those bills for gold. They liked that. The banks liked that because that made money scarce. And if money is scarce, it's getting a higher interest rate. And people, banks wanted to be paid back in bills that were, quote, as good as gold. It's an artificial restraint, though. It's really not necessary. And during the Civil War, the federal government, to actually defeat slavery, printed what were called greenbacks that were basically backed by the power of the government, not by some artificial standard of a precious metal like gold. And what the populace wanted was more greenbacks. They also wanted to monetize silver, thereby allowing an expansion in the money supply that would bring down interest rates. And again, interest rates were a main issue for farmers and a whole range of folks. But a lot of small entrepreneurs and farmers we're finding that they were paying interest rates, double-digit interest rates, often enough. And in the South, especially, cash-starved, 
where farmers had to borrow from the plantation owner or from the town merchant, and they were paying effective interest rates of 50, 70, 100%. So the demand for an expanded money supply that would bring down interest rates, and even by the way, the populace wanted the postal service to open savings banks that could loan money at 2%. Uh, they wanted the federal government to open public warehouses where farmers at harvest could store their grain, use that warehouse receipt as collateral to borrow money at 2% from that warehouse, from that public warehouse, and that, that would allow them to wait for better prices. If you have to sell at harvest, you're going to get screwed because there's a huge glut of supply. Prices always go down at harvest. So farmers would want to hang on, but they would need some kind of public support to do so. So it was public resources being used to sustain and make sustainable private enterprise on the scale of small farmers uh, who needed that kind of support. The greenbacks that you spoke about were lambasted as, quote, fiat money, which is a kind of scorn that's applied with the same term by the right wing today. You can go on the internet. I, I believe it was, you know, Rush Limbaugh who was, you know, always talking about gold and selling gold and how gold was the only thing to have. Is there a connection between the kind of control of the monopolies and the banks back in the populist era and the right wing position today? It, metaphorically, yeah. I mean, who's going to own the gold? That's not something which common folk are going to be hoarding uh, and storing, you know, in their basement or garage. It's going to be the people who have the power to access that precious metal and then use it as an artificial restraint on the amount of money in circulation. What was happening was that prices were falling across the economy, especially for grain, for cotton, for corn and wheat and whatnot. The agricultural prices were plummeting. But the prices of manufactured goods, of mechanical uh, reapers, for example, of railroad freight rates, those hardly fell at all. And in fact, often enough would go up as the companies were colluding. So what people wanted was a way in which to manage the money supply, to maximize the benefit for the largest number of people, for farmers, for workers, and not simply allow a ruling elite that control the gold supply to thereby artificially restrain the amount of money and allow for far higher interest rates than was actually necessary. And you know, that idea of postal banking, that's also very alive today. In fact, I believe Bernie Sanders had included it in the original Build Back Better plan, right. which of course got scuttled. But a lot of people are supporting postal banking as a way to deal with the huge issue of poor people not having bank accounts. Absolutely. And in fact, there's another populist program that's being revived by some, and that's the idea that if the, if the railroads cannot be operated to maximize the public benefit, if they're only benefiting a small elite of absentee investors, then maybe the government should take back the public resources that were used to actually build those railroads and run them as a public enterprise for the public benefit. And some people are saying, well, you know, after all these railroad accidents and towns being wiped out by negligent rail companies that are operating these massive trains with understaffed crews, maybe that should be something we consider again, too. This is so interesting, their approach to capitalism, because as you've already pointed out, they wanted to reform capitalism, not to replace it. 
Of course, I would think there would be some on the left who would say that's probably impossible. But tell us about the cooperative Commonwealth idea and how they saw that as as a way to reform capitalism. What they wanted to do was basically it would still be a market economy and there would still be private initiative, but it would be the private initiative of farmers and workers acting collectively on behalf of their own, managing their own labor and the product of their own labor. So that meant that the organizations that were the social base of the populist party, and there were two, the Farmers Alliance and the Knights of Labor. And in both cases, they favored the idea of farmers getting together. And I'll talk about the Farmers Alliance because that was the more important base for the populace. The Farmers Alliance advocated for a cooperative approach in which farmers, instead of going individually into this massive complex of grain merchants and international trade and getting fleeced and getting the lowest price for their goods, instead, they would what they called bulk In other words, they would combine, a 100 farmers would get together and they would bulk their cotton or bulk their grain or corn, wheat or corn. And and by doing so, they could then bargain, in effect, collectively with grain merchants and say to those grain merchants, look, we're going to cut your costs by we're already pulling together the product of 100 farmers. You don't have to negotiate with 100 different farmers or impose a price upon them. You can reduce your transaction costs. And we will actually provide you with that bulk product at a price which should reflect our effort on your behalf. So we should get a higher market price for what we've done to enable your large-scale economies of scale operation. And that was the argument that that they made in in the case of agriculture. For workers in the Knights of Labor, their argument was, listen, we do the work. Why should the benefit go to absentee owners? living in New York City or Boston or wherever, we are the ones that actually have, that particularly in this era, when a lot more of it was craft work, it was starting to shift to factory labor. The idea was we should be the ones who control collectively, but privately, private initiative, but on a collective basis in a market economy. So it's sort of a halfway point. And of course, the ruling elite of the time regarded this as, as, you know, one step removed from communism. But most populists, when pressed on the matter and saying, well, isn't this socialism? The answer often enough was, well, yeah, it's called Christian socialism, meaning the greatest good for the greatest number on behalf of social justice in this world. Not not some pie in the sky, but right now, how do we implement a social justice outcome on behalf of the farmers and the workers who, after all, whose labor is what produces what we need to sustain our world? And when it comes to social Christianity or Christian socialism, I mean, they also were really pioneers in gender and racial solidarity, although, you know, there are nuances to it. I think they were probably better on gender from the beginning than they were on racial solidarity. So talk more about this. I mean, you you did mention that up in the beginning— What was the role of women in the populist movement? Well, actually, it was quite extraordinary because at that time in the 1890s, no other political party invited women to participate, Uh, not the Republicans, not the Democrats. In the populist party and in the Farmers Alliance before that, women were very active and very prominent, especially at the state and local level where women could vote. For the officers of the organization, women could run for those positions. Women were speakers. Women were bookkeepers. Women were doing all of the work that 
normally would be done in the household, but also running for leadership in these local alliances, as they call them. And in that regard, it represented something quite different. And so this was an organization and a movement that brought men and women together on an ongoing basis. Now, in terms of race, it was a step forward, but not as far as we would have hoped, looking back from our perspective, 130 years later. The populace favored a multiracial movement on behalf of the economic interests shared by workers and by farmers. They did not, however, take the next step and uh, criticize the social segregation of the races. That was left sacrosanct. In the South, it was tough enough for the populace by by organizing a multiracial challenge to the power of the large landowners and banks and corporate enterprises, they were already putting themselves at enormous risk. And in fact, many of them paid with their lives. Uh, There was a wide range of episodes in which populist leaders in the South were simply assassinated, or they would be boycotted, or they would be shunned, or there would be violence against them, black and white. And so, Uh, They went one step towards a multiracial economic movement, and that's why Martin Luther King, many years later, lauded the populace as an early first step in the right direction. It didn't go far enough, but it was a first step, and a lot of populists paid dearly for taking that risk. And yet, also, you feel, you say in this book, Steve Babson, in The Forgotten Populace, that the lack of total solidarity, the lack of social solidarity actually was a kind of Achilles heel or chink in the armor because it allowed for a kind of divide and conquer that, that developed in the South. Is that right? I think so. Uh, and it, it's, it also meant that the alliance on economic matters would wither and fade if you were still living in worlds that are so completely apart and so separate and in which implicitly it was a hierarchical arrangement in which yeah, they're two separate realms, but they are not co-equal. And the white society obviously prevailed in terms of economic and political power. And it was naive to believe that that could prevail while you work for equality in economic matters as farmers. Uh, it had to be a complete package. And we learned that later. And a lot of the what the 1960s was about was implementing that approach and understanding. You know, what's finally, what's what's so striking, I think, is the 180-degree turn that has been taken by so many farmers and now even a lot of, uh, you know, uh, workers from these very same regions away from progressive roots to, to right-wing Trumpism today. Why do you think that happened? And, and do you think that that can be changed by looking back at the populists? Well, I would hope so. And that was one of my motivations for writing the book was to say, you know, these are still issues that are so relevant today and really worthy of consideration in terms of who the real populists were, uh, not the fake populists like Donald Trump, um, who, you know, talks a game in which I'm, you know, he claims to be a representative of the common people. But that's absurd if you look at his actual life and program and what he's done uh, when he was president, you know, tax cuts for the rich and denial of climate change and a whole range of approaches, reducing the voting rights of folks and disparaging minorities and immigrants and women, uh, he had nothing to do with the populist legacy. And so it's really a misnomer to be relating him to, to folks who actually deserve our respect and appreciation for the changes they set in motion. And it's time to reconsider 
what that would mean today. I don't necessarily, by the way, mean that it has to be called populism, but what we're looking at in the case of Trump is it's, it's sort of a, there's a lot of presumption that what we're looking at here is the white working class. It's actually when they look at who has been the supporters and the cult followers, and particularly those arrested uh, back in 2020 uh, at the Capitol riot, it's really, it's more of a, a sort of middling uh, small investor class that's aligned with and linked to some very prominent wealthy folks who are mouthing the same rhetoric and the same kind of nasty approaches to anyone who disagrees with them. There are working people who are frustrated and for good reason. Not many farmers left these days. I mean, they're a much very different group these days, uh, much more capital intensive farming, uh, very few of them left and many of them employers of farm workers themselves. And so they're divided in a way and, and represent something quite different from what prevailed back in the 1890s. But for working people, a lot of folks felt abandoned by some of the policies that were advocated by the Democrats, as well as the Republicans. NAFTA would jump out right away. If you're going to promote the movement of jobs, many of them, by the way, rural factories, supplier plants that were union and paid a decent wage, and then they closed and they moved to Mexico. And the Democrats seem to be on board with that. In fact, it was Bill Clinton who signed that bill. So a lot of folks felt abandoned by a Democratic Party that had lost track of where its roots were uh, in the New Deal. And it's still an ongoing debate about what the future of that party is going to be and who it's going to align with. And I would hope some of the recent events in terms of the labor movement would inspire more Democrats to say that that's our social base. That's where we should be is with those folks who are fighting for uh, better wages, for a return on their extraordinary labor and work, uh, and to reduce the extraordinary gaps in pay between new hires and legacy employees, as they call them, and the auto workers. Those are all positive things, and I would hope that's, that many people would see that as the future of the Democratic Party. I could not agree more. Well, Steve Babson, it's a terrific book. It's short. It's got lots of great illustrations. The Forgotten Populace, When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Steve Babson is a labor educator and union activist. He's published seven books, including Working Detroit, The Making of a Union Town, Lean Work, Empowerment and Exploitation in the Global Auto Industry, and The Color of Law, Ernie Goodman and the Struggle for Labor and Civil Rights in Detroit. Next up, a tribute to Matthew Shepard. He would have just turned 46 if he hadn't been murdered in Laramie, Wyoming in 1998. Go to writersvoice.net to find extra content with links, book excerpts, and extended interviews. And please spread the word about Writer's Voice. Follow us on X, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find our interview transcripts and subscribe at the Writer's Voice Substack. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Matthew Shepard was murdered 25 years ago. His death, my guest Leslie Newman says, was a watershed moment for LGBTQ plus rights. But while those rights have undoubtedly seen important victories in the last quarter century, now they're under the assault of a fierce backlash from right-wing hate mongers. 
a gay icon herself after the enormous success of her children's book, Heather Has Two Mommies. Newman wants her new book about Matthew Shepard, Always Matt, to remind readers of the person Shepard was, someone who just wanted to, quote, make the world a better place, a kinder place, a peaceful place for everyone. Leslie Newman, welcome to Writer's Voice. I'm happy to be here. On October 6, 1998, in Laramie, Wyoming, Matthew Shepard was brutally beaten and left for dead. You were actually on your way to Laramie to give a talk at the university there when you got the news that he'd passed away in the hospital due to his injuries six days after the assault. Tell us why you were going there and how you felt when you got the news. I had been invited the previous spring to be the keynote speaker for their Gay Awareness Week. And so a couple of days before I was to get on a plane, Jim Osborne, who was the head of the LGBT group, called to tell me what had happened to his friend, Matt, and asked me if I would still come. And I said, are you canceling Gay Awareness Week? And he said, no. I said, well, then I will come because I think it's really important for your events to go on. I did ask for a bodyguard, actually, because, you know, back then the internet was not what it is today. So it was very hard to figure out really what was going on out there besides the fact that Matt had been attacked. And at that point, he was still alive. I got on the plane on October 12th without knowing that he had died early that morning. So I was picked up by a student at the airport. She was devastated. And when we got to campus, things were pretty much in an uproar. And when I gave my talk, there was the front row was filled with the LGBTQ students and they had left one empty seat right in the middle. And I just kept looking at that seat and thinking Matt should be sitting there. Just incredibly tragic. Um, now, it did happen more than a couple of decades ago. Why come out with this book now? Well, I think a quarter of a century later, it's important to pause and think about where we were then and where we are now, when in some ways is very different and in some ways is not different at all. And to really acknowledge his memory, you know, he wanted to work in the field of social justice. And there are many people who are doing that in his honor. Personally, I don't want him to be forgotten. He's had such a huge impact on my life. And as the years and decades have gone on, many people have either forgotten him or never heard of him. So this was something that I could do to amplify his name and his story in hopes of inspiring people to take action and make the world a better place. You say he had a huge impact on your life. What was that impact? Well, I was supposed to meet him. He was part of the committee that selected me to be the keynote speaker. And so I felt like, and I still feel like, since his voice was silenced, I need to be a representative of his voice. I feel that is a obligation, a responsibility, and an honor. And so I have met literally thousands of people because of him, though I never met him. And that certainly gives me pause. In the preface, you write that Matt Shepard's murder was a watershed moment in the struggle for LGBTQ plus rights. How was it a watershed moment? 
it really woke people up. The crime and the murder was so incredibly brutal. There was just this worldwide response to it. And it was a very dramatic moment because, you know, first the attack, and then there was the fact that he was out there alone on the prairie for 18 hours. Then there was the fact that his murderers were caught and their girlfriends were apprehended. And then he was in a coma for six days. Would he survive or not? If he survived, what would he be like? His parents were out of the country. Would they get there in time to be with him? Um, President Clinton called the Shepherd family. Ellen DeGeneres made a speech on the steps of the Capitol. There were vigils everywhere, candlelight vigils. So the story got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Fred Phelps and his followers, who were you know so filled with hate, protested at the trial of one of Matt's murderers. So it, it just grew. And I think people just had had enough, it was, you know, like the Stonewall riots. People had just had enough. Matt was more than a victim, you know, more than a legend. He was a complex human being. Uh, I watched the film that you reference in the book, Leslie and Newman, in your book, Always Matt. That film is Matt Shepard is a Friend of Mine. It was a beautiful tribute to a complex human being. Tell us about Matt Shepard, the person. Well, as you know, I never met him. So everything I learned about him was from talking to people who knew him and reading about him, you know, in articles and books like Judy Shepard's book. He seemed like he was very open and friendly and passionate about certain causes and really wanting to make a difference in the world. He definitely had some troubles as most young people do. And I believe that had he lived, you know, he would be 47 today. His birthday was December 1st. I think he would have made a huge difference in the world and lived out his dreams and his passions to work in the field of international social justice. He was afraid that his parents wouldn't accept him if he came out to them what actually happened when he came out? Well, you would really have to ask his parents more about that. But my understanding is that they were very accepting of him. They loved him. I have heard Dennis Shepard say, I don't have a son and a gay son. I have two sons. And that's how they felt. Because he, he's referring to Matt had a brother as well. Yes, his brother is named Logan. And uh, he was 15 when all this happened. And I don't really know Logan, but I know that his life was greatly affected, obviously. Well, tell us more about the making of this book, because, you know, as you say, you didn't personally know Matt. How did you go about uh, creating the content of the book? I mean, first of all, it is it's written as a poem. It's very simply written, but clearly you had to do some research. And by the way, the illustrations are also really gorgeous. So talk about the creation of this book. This is my second book about Matt Shepard. The first book I wrote is called October Morning, a song for Matthew Shepard. And it is a series of 68 poems that um, explore the impact of his murder from all different viewpoints, such as the fence he was tied to, the truck he was kidnapped in, the moon that watched over him, etc. So I did a ton of research when I wrote that book. And so I 
called back on that research, which included reading every newspaper article that was published by the New York Times at the time, reading the local press coverage, reading Judy Shepard's book, watching Michelle Houseway's film, um, reading the trial transcript, which is about 1,500 pages. So I really steeped myself in this story. Plus, I had already done what I called the emotional research of having been there in Laramie. And actually, I went back several times. Um, I asked Jim Osborne to, to kind of take me around the town and most importantly, take me to the site of the murder so that I could stand there at the fence on the prairie, feeling the Wyoming wind and looking back at the town, which would probably have been the last thing that Matt saw. So all of that, I dumped it into what I call the salad spinner of my mind, and I pulled the string. And then this book is is what came out. Jim Osborne? Uh, Jim Osborne was Matt's friend. He was the head of the LGBT group at the university. And he's the one who called me to tell me what had happened to Matt and to see if I was still going to come out to Wyoming. And I just want to say that the reason I say the LGBT group is because that's what it was called at the time. At the time, there was no Q attached to it. That must have been really powerful and really difficult to be at that spot. Tell us more about what that was like for you. It felt really important to stand there and bear witness and to say Kaddish, which is the Jewish prayer of mourning. And Jim told me about other people who had come to the fence, made a pilgrimage, um, made offerings. I have a photo of a, a cross made of stones. I actually picked up a, a, a rock that had some writing on it when I was out there. I didn't take it. I just looked at it and put it back where somebody had placed it. But it was just important for me as a poet to physically let my body feel that place and let it be absorbed into my blood and bones before I could put words on the paper. I'm Francesca Rhiannon, and you're listening to Writer's Voice. My guest is Leslie Newman, poet and author of books for both children and adults. She's best known for her book, Heather Has Two Mommies, and we're talking with her now about her newest book, Always Matt, a tribute to Matthew Shepard. Let's talk a little bit about the two men who assaulted Matt Shepard. And, and in asking about them, I really want to ask about how much attention should we pay to perpetrators of these kinds of crimes? There's kind of a, a controversial sense about that. You know, we should talk about them as a, examples of what we don't want. We shouldn't talk about them because we shouldn't give them any kind of public stance. What's your sense about those two men and how we talk about them? Well, one thing that I can tell you is the death penalty was spoken of. And Russell Henderson, who was supposed to go to trial first, changed his plea from not guilty to guilty because he did not want to face the death penalty. And then when Aaron McKinney went to trial, he kept his plea of not guilty and he was found guilty of kidnapping, robbery, and murder. And so it was up to the shepherds to really decide if he was going to go to death row or have life imprisonment. And they 
very strongly after much discussion decided that he would go to jail for life. And the reason, and this gets back to your question, was because they did not want to hear anything from him ever again. So when someone is on death row, their trial immediately comes up for appeal at some point. And there could be a lot of attention paid to them. And so this was one of the reasons and one of the stipulations of his sentence was that he could cannot speak to the media. And so I feel pretty similarly. I mean, he made a very strong statement when he committed this crime and in subsequent interviews, like when he was apprehended, which is very close time-wise to when he committed the crime. And I'm not really interested in what more he has to say. I mean, that's just a personal thing. Other people maybe are. He was interviewed by somebody from the Tectonic Theater Project for the Laramie Project Part 2, the epilogue. And so some of his words are in that script and in that play. So people can find that and read what he had to say. Now, these two men were not charged with a hate crime because it wasn't possible under Wyoming's criminal law at the time. But in 2009, President Obama signed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, which is the law that defines certain attacks motivated by victim identity as hate crimes and increases the penalties, therefore. First of all, the pairing of Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr., talk about that. You know, I can't quite remember when James Byrd Jr. was murdered. So I'm not sure what the, the time difference is between those two murders. I know that the Shepard family was instrumental in the passing of that law. I don't know whose idea it was to pair the two of them. Um, but I think, you know, we have strength in numbers. And I think it's a stronger statement to have both of their names on that anti-hate crime law. Right. And he was a black man, James Byrd Jr. Correct. I mean, I just find that it's apt and interesting to have a hate crimes law that is, you know, that includes both hate crimes over gender as and sexual orientation and hate crimes based on race, that hate crimes are hate crimes no matter who they affect, basically. I agree. Now, the brutal assault that ended Matt's life was not, in fact, the first assault that he endured. Now, this is something I did find out from the movie Matt Shepard was a friend of mine. Um, in 1995, he was beaten and gang raped during a high school trip to Morocco. It had a huge impact on him, as anyone can imagine. Um, and was that something that you talked about? Uh, you didn't really discuss it in this book, but did you in your previous book about him? I did not. I knew about it. And I decided that I really wanted to focus on the hate crime and murder in 1998, as opposed to what had happened in Morocco. But one thing that is really a bizarre coincidence that in both of those hate crimes, his shoes were stolen. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. In fact, I have a poem in October morning uh, from the point of view of his shoes. And what's your thought on that? What, what was the poem? 
Well, the, the poem just um, describes the shoes in a way that there's a, a lot of double entendre and he, Matt is really being described in, as the shoes are being described. That's the way my, my poem works. Um, I just think it's a very bizarre coincidence. I don't really have any more thoughts, but I mean, what are the chances that in your life, your shoes would be stolen twice? And under those kinds of circumstances. Right. Now, I want to ask you, I wasn't sure whether I was going to ask you this, but I, I kind of felt like I had to, because your book inspired me to read more about Matthew Shepard. I came across a Guardian article about a book by Stephen Jimenez, who is an award-winning journalist, is a gay man, wrote a book called The Book of Matt, and he says it wasn't a hate crime. He says that Matt Shepard knew the men, he'd been sexually involved with one of them, and had been involved with buying and selling drugs with both of them. And he's been accused by many in the gay rights movement of being an ally to the right-wing Christian fundamentalists who deny the reality of homophobia. But he has said that nothing in his book takes away from the brutality and iniquity of the crime or the culpability of his murderers. But we owe Matthew and other young men like the tr like him the truth. So this kind of set me back on my heels, and I had to really think this through for myself. That is, what I came up with, and I'd like to get your comment, was that what does it matter whether, you know, if it's true, people are complex, the murder was brutal, Matthew was gay, his life did really create a watershed in the gay rights movement no matter what. So is it even important? But I know this is hugely controversial. And, you know, I, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on this? So I am aware of the book. I have not read the book. Um, I have listened to tapes of Aaron McKinney saying things like, Matt Shepard needed killing. I don't like faggots. You know, after he was put in jail, he went around bragging, I'm the one that killed that faggot. You know, he was not ashamed. He was proud. So, and I have also um, received copies of letters from the investigating officers who do not believe any of that, do not believe that it was anything to do with drugs, that it was definitely a hate crime. And those are my beliefs as well. Um, I have all kinds of documentation about they're not it's not at my fingertips. So I think that people in Laramie and Wyoming are obviously were really upset when this happened, wanted to some people maybe wanted to change the narrative because it was intolerable to think that two local young men were capable of such hate and such crime. Um, you know that Aaron McKinney tried to use the quote unquote gay defense that, you know, Matt put his hand on his legs and he got so outraged by his own homophobia that, you know, he just had to strike out at him, which the judge threw out. So, you know, in a way it doesn't matter, but I completely stand by my narrative that this was an anti-gay hate crime. Okay, thank you for that. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm talking with Leslie Newman about her new book, Always Matt, 
a tribute to Matthew Shepard. Now, as we all know, there is a fierce backlash against LGBTQ plus rights that is going on right now that is being pushed by right-wing extremists who have taken over many legislatures in this country and also one of our two major political parties. What is your take on the backlash? And do you feel like, does it threaten to undo all the progress that has been made so far? Well, my response is it's horrifying. It's terrifying. It's infuriating. And it just lights a fire under me and under a lot of other people that, you know, we cannot be silent. We have to do whatever we can do to overturn this backlash because, you know, Judy Shepard, when she and Dennis established the foundation, which was two months after their son was murdered, was established on his birthday, December 1st, 1998. They never thought that the foundation would be in existence 25 years later because they didn't think it would need to be in existence. They thought we were going to go in a good direction and the world was going to become a safer place for the LGBTQ plus community. And that hasn't happened. So I do think that the threat is real and we just have to fight as hard as we can because everybody's freedom is at stake these days. So one way that I take action is by putting books like Always Matt out into the world in hopes of educating and inspiring people of all ages to make the world a better place. Well, you almost answered my next question, but I'm going to ask you to elaborate. You know, when you say everybody's rights are being attacked, and I, I couldn't agree more, but I'm just going to ask you, why should people in the larger community care about protecting LGBTQ plus rights? Well. You know, to me, it's so obvious. It's, it's even a little hard to answer that question. I mean, we should all care about humanity. I mean, you know, until all of us are free, none of us are free. Um, if I am only for myself, who am I for? If not now, when? I mean, there's just every culture, every tradition, every peacemaker believes that coalition work is so important. I mean, we're all part of the human race. And when any one of us is threatened, that threat spreads, you know, it's insidious. And so even if you only care about yourself, which I hope your listeners are not of that ilk, um, you know, for self-preservation, you should care, but you should really care because whether you know it or not, there are LGBTQ people in your life whom you care about, whether it's a very close person, like a son, a daughter, a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, or someone you see in passing, like your friendly postal worker or, you know, grocery store clerk. Um, but we're all human beings and we all need to care about each other and work together. It's just, it's, just, it's as simple as that. Right on to that. So as we close, you have written, as you say, what you do in this world is you create books like Always Matt, this one that you've created. What are some things that listeners can do to help promote Matt Shepard's legacy? Um, he promised to make the world a better place, a kinder place, a peaceful place for everyone. That's how you end your book with, with that. So what are some things that people can do to help this? Number one, vote. Absolutely essential. Um, you can 
write letters. You can call your representatives and talk about how you feel. You can write editorials. You can participate in letter writing campaigns to help people get the vote out. You can help educate people. If you're a teacher, you can uh, create an LGBTQ and allies club at your school. You can put a sign on your door that shows students that your classroom and or office is a safe place. You can visit the Matthew Shepard organization online and see what kind of work they're doing. You can certainly donate to them. Uh, if you have the means, you can donate to politicians whose work you believe in. Uh, and most importantly, you can reach out, especially to a young LGBTQ plus person who you sense might be uh, having a hard time and show them they're not alone and perhaps save a life. You know, the suicide rate for LGBTQ youth is very high. It's really hard to be an LGBTQ person in what is becoming more and more of a hostile world. So we need to take care of our young people and show them that we care. Well, those are wonderful suggestions. And we will also link to some of those organizations, especially the Matthew Shepard Foundation uh, at our website. Leslie Newman, you are the author of so many books, from Heather Has Two Mommies to Always Matt, a tribute to Matt Shepard. Thank you so much for talking with us here. It's always a pleasure, Francesca. Leslie Newman is the author of numerous books. In addition to Heather Has Two Mommies, they include October Morning, A Song for Matthew Shepard, A Letter to Harvey Milk, and Sparkle Boy. Go to writersvoice.net for links to support LGBTQ rights. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Be sure to join us next week when we talk with Cy Montgomery about her new book of Time and Turtles. And go to writersvoice.net to listen again for free, sign up for our podcast, and learn more about our guests and their work. You can find interview transcripts at our Writer's Voice Substack. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. Francesca Rhiannon